It's good to be with you this morning. I've looked forward to coming and uh, ministering to you and being ministered to by you because it's a mutual kind of thing when we come together to worship the Lord. My wife was hoping to come this morning, but um, we quickly realized this morning that she was not up to it, and uh, we had made some other arrangements uh, in that eventuality. And so someone from our church is with her this morning so that I can be free to come and be with you. It has been some time since I've been with you. Uh, Your pastor has graciously invited me on a number of occasions, and I lament that uh, I have either had to decline because of our current circumstances, or I've had to, uh, I've accepted and then had to cancel, and felt terrible doing that. And was not going to let that happen this time if I had any, any choice. So it's good to be with you. By my estimate, the last time I was with you was in June, more than a year ago. And um, we've been ministering a number of times through a particular uh, theme. And uh, let's see if we remember. What book do you expect me to turn to this morning? <laughs> You're smiling. There are probably people here who don't know that, right? Okay, Revelation. Now, the, the real test. What chapter? Oh, we got through nine. Chapter 10. But that's very good. Will you turn with me to Revelation chapter 10? Revelation chapter 10. John, describing what he sees in heaven, says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down. Let me go back, actually, to chapter 9, verse 20, and that will help frame a little context, and I'll come back to that. 9.20, The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven 
And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Let's bow together. <clears throat> Lord, again, we come to you in prayer. As we open your word, as we seek to proclaim and explain and apply your word, as we seek to listen and hear and receive your truth. Lord, we pray that your spirit will be the one who opens our eyes, who opens our ears, and opens our hearts to receive all that you have said. Give us understanding. Give us wisdom to know and apply the truth of your word. Lift up our hearts. Our brother prayed earlier for those who are overwhelmed, and there is no shame in being overwhelmed by life circumstances and by sinful circumstances in this world. But our Lord, our sufficiency is in Christ Jesus. And so we pray that as we hear his word, as we see glimpses of his glory, may indeed our hearts be lifted up May our minds be focused. May we, our wills be determined to do that which you've called us to do, to be your people, to love you and to serve you, to the glory of your great name. Amen. Because it's been a while, um, you know we have to go back and just establish certain basic truths. We've been working through the book of Revelation. Someone uh, in my group of chaplains, I have a, for 20 years I've had a group of chaplains that meet on Friday mornings from North King County and South Snohomish County. And we do informal training and we debrief some of the calls that we've been on. And uh, one of the chaplains at the end of our meeting asked me what I had been reading that I found encouraging. And I told him, I've been greatly encouraged in recent times through reading and rereading the book of Revelation. 
And this chaplain, who was a retired medical doctor, an emergency medical doctor, said to me, good luck with that. <laughs> that to me was an invitation. <laughs> and I spent 30 minutes telling him that if he does not feel encouraged by the book of Revelation, it's because he's approaching it from the wrong direction. We read in chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Those words are so important. We can't just skip over that introduction to this book because that, those words frame the mindset and the attitude from which we have to approach every page. This book is the revelation of Oh, you know better than that. I don't ask, generally, I don't ask questions for which I'm not looking for a response or an answer. Okay? So, let's try that again. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are other actors, there are other persons in the book, but this is not a book about Satan. It is not a book about the Antichrist. It is not a book about the man of sin. It is not even a book about, really, eschatology or the last times or the end of the world as we know it. It is a book about Jesus Christ. The purpose of John is not to satisfy our curiosity, but to deliver the message that God has given him, and it's a message of the unveiled glory of Christ Jesus. Now I say the unveiled glory because that's what the word revelation means. The revealing is not something brand new, but that which has always been there has been opened up. It's as if the veil has come off, a cloth has been removed, and we are able to see Christ in a way in which we have never seen him before. If you think about it, the revelation of Christ in the Gospels and the revelation of Christ in the Epistles has largely to do with his state of humiliation. There are glimpses to his pre-incarnate state throughout the New Testament. There are glimpses of his post-resurrection and post-ascension state throughout the Epistles. But for the most part, we see Christ in his ministry on earth and the implications and application of that ministry. But when we come to the book of Revelation, we come to the Christ who has died, who has risen from the dead, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, who is exercising rule and reign over heaven and earth from his throne, and who is coming again at the end of time. That's magnificent, is it not? That's the beauty that's the majesty. That's the glory that we are intended to see through these pages of the book of Revelation. And if we don't see it, dear ones, it's because we blew it. 
It's because we got our eyes off of the focused view of Christ. So that's the purpose of the book. It's written to encourage, to bless. John says, blessed is the one who reads. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, depressed are those who hear it. He doesn't say, discouraged is the one who reads it. Or frightened is the one who reads it. Blessed. Blessed is a good word, is it not? Uh, We don't have any negative connotations to blessing. Blessing speaks of of stability. Blessing speaks of satisfaction. Blessing speaks of joy. And so our response to this book, the reason it's written, is to bless us who read it and who hear it and who take it to heart. So the ultimate outcome ought to be that we are encouraged, not discouraged, that we are emboldened, not frightened, and that we are overjoyed, not depressed. Does that make sense? And that's what we've seen through the book. The book takes place in the first century, and its context is very important. The church is undergoing persecution. It's undergoing persecution by the Jews, the apostate Jews of that day. I had apostate Jews because they were believing Jews. But for the most part, Judaism had gone astray. It foundered on the rocks of legalism. It was a ruinous religion. It's also being persecuted. The church was also being persecuted by the Roman authorities. <clears throat> In fact, John, when he wrote this, was where? On the island of Patmos, enjoying vacation? No, he was exiled there. Some of the other apostles, namely Peter, Paul, had already been put to death for the faith. Other believers had suffered, but for some reason, the authorities simply exiled John. That was in the providence of God. They exiled him. And it's out of exile. It's in that that imprisoned island context that he sends this letter to the churches on the mainland. There were seven churches that made up the circuit of of churches in Asia Minor. They're all identified in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 1, we see a vision of the glorious Christ. And what is he doing? At the end of the chapter, he's standing among the golden lampstands, and the, he tells us that those lampstands represent those seven churches. And Christ is standing among the lampstands as the great high priest, caring for, tending to those lampstands. So in time of persecution, the church is wondering, where is Jesus? He said he would be with us till the end of the age. And here we are suffering from the Jews, suffering from the Romans. People losing their jobs, having to flee for their lives. That's how the church in Antioch was started. By people who had fled from Jerusalem. People who were imprisoned. That's what Saul was doing when he was traveling to Damascus. Putting people in prison because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of them losing their lives, as I mentioned, two of the apostles. Where is Jesus in the midst of all this? 
That's important for the church to know. And so John tells us, Jesus is in the midst of those churches. He's in the midst of the lampstands. Not just in a general sense. But as we went through those churches, we saw that Jesus knew each one of those local churches inside and out. He knew their strengths. He knew their weaknesses. He knows their needs. He encouraged them. He, in some cases, rebukes them. He knows this congregation inside and out. He knows you. He knows your works. He knows your, your faithfulness and your desire to obey him. He also knows the struggles that you have. He knows the opposition that you have. Some in your families, some with friends, some in the workplace. And he is with you and he encourages you. And in every one of those, to every one of those churches, he gave encouragement to those who overcome. And he'll give encouragement to you to overcome, to persevere and continue to serve and obey him. We saw in chapters 4 and 5 his, his coronation, his ascension to the, to the throne, his taking the, the book of God's providence and beginning to rule and reign, just as Psalm 2 said. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And then we saw Jesus beginning to take on those great persecutors of the church, the two great enemies of Christ, And his church in the first century were apostate Judaism and pagan Rome. The theme of the book is in chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. In chapter 6, our Lord, risen and ascended, rides out on a white horse as a conqueror bent on conquest, engaging in battle against, spiritual battle, against the first of his opponents, and then the second in defense of his church. The trumpet warnings and afflictions that followed in chapters 8 and 9 ought to have moved the people in Jerusalem to repentance. But, as we just read in chapter 9, verse 20, they did not repent. After all those plagues, they still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. In chapter 11, the holy city of Jerusalem, including the temple itself, is given to the Gentiles to be trampled upon and utterly destroyed. And in between, lie the 11 verses in between the the promise of judgment and the carrying out of judgment lie the 11 verses that we call chapter 10 it would be easy to overlook these few verses 
but to do so would be to miss another spectacular vision of Jesus Christ glorified. I want to call your attention this morning to three things that these verses tell us about Jesus Christ. The first is this. Jesus Christ is sovereign over land and sea. Verses 1 to 4. We read John saying, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now, who is this, this mighty angel who plants his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and shouts like a roar of lion? Uh, the commentators range in opinions from he was an archangel to just an angel to Jesus Christ himself. Now remember that the word angel, angelos, in Greek, means what? We, we, we restrict the use of the word to think of heavenly beings, but what does the word itself actually mean? Messenger. And who is the supreme messenger who faithfully reveals the character and purposes of God? Is it not our Lord Jesus, himself the divine Logos, the word incarnate. There are things here that I think point us in that direction. I I have no doubt in my mind that this, in fact, is our Lord Jesus. Consider his description. He's robed in a cloud. That cloud is reminiscent of the book of Exodus, where we read about the Shekinah glory at the entrance to the temple, that manifested glory of God. This angel exudes that glory. He has a a rainbow behind his head. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, there's a rainbow, and where is it located? Behind the throne. Again, the, the rainbow is not a secular symbol. The rainbow is a symbol of the power and purposes of our holy God. We see the rainbow as a bow hung in the heavens. You think we, 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 we don't make the connection, but the reason it's called a bow is because it's similar to bow and arrow. And God in in the destruction of the world at the time of Noah, God said he would not destroy the world in that way again. So he took his bow and he hung it, as it were, on the wall in peace. It's a symbol of peace and God's promise of his covenant. 
And that rainbow appears again at the throne in the fulfillment of God's covenantal peace. And Jesus has that rainbow about his head as the prince of peace. He has a face like the sun. In chapter 1, again, we saw that glowing face of the manifested Son of Man, Son of God. He is called the Son of Righteousness. His legs are like fiery pillars. Again in chapter 1, that's part of the description of that man standing among the golden lampstands. And it calls to mind the pillar of fire and cloud that protected and guided the people of God in the wilderness. He has a, a voice and a roar like a lion. It calls to mind the lion of the tribe of Judah, a reference to our Savior. And we see that John readily obeys the angel. In verse 9, and when he's told to take the scroll in verse 8, I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. When the angel says to him, take and eat it, he took it and he ate it, without question, without hesitation. All of these things, I point, I think, point us to the identity of this angel as our Lord Jesus. This angel, this language is too exalted to be merely an angel, even too exalted to be an archangel, as glorious as angels may be, this is our Lord. His power, his authority, spans both land and sea and descends from heaven where the throne is. Is there anything that he does not control? He is sovereign. Remember I gave you a little little trick for remembering what the word sovereign means. If you take the S on the word sovereign, drop it down, move it over, put it on the back, what word do you have? Got to think on that one, okay? I can't visualize. What? Overreigns. Exactly. Overreigns. That's what sovereign means, to reign over. And Jesus over reigns. Jesus reigns over land and sea. Indeed, all of creation. He is the sovereign king. He has all authority committed to him. In verses 3 and 4, We read that the seven thunders spoke. John began to write down what he heard. And if you remember, that's kind of his practice throughout. Uh, He sees, and then he writes. He sees, and he writes. Hears, and he writes. And he was about to write down what the seven thunders said. When this angel... This sovereign one, this voice from heaven, this time commanded him to seal up what had been said. 
It is not for us to know all things. And it's useless for us to speculate. Deuteronomy 29.29 is a, a key verse to bear in mind throughout your life. Do you remember what it says? The secret things belong to the Lord. But that which is revealed is for us and for our children. So God has certain things that are not for us to know. He has other things that we are to know. He's given us plenty to know right here. And so we need to spend our time focusing on what God has made clear, not speculating on what God has not made clear. And yet, commentators being commentators feel obligated to tell us who the seven thunders might have been and what the seven thunders might have said. One commentator detailed nine different theories as to what the thunders, seven thunders, may be. Uh, going back to Eden, going back to the garden, we think we have a right to know everything. We don't. David Chilton comments, what is important here is that God wanted John to record the fact that he was not supposed to reveal whatever the seven thunders said. God wanted the church to know that there are some things, many things actually, that God has no intention of telling us beforehand. This serves well as a rebuke to the tendency of most sermons and commentaries on this book, that of a curious searching into those things that God has not seen fit to reveal. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. In other words, man has been given the law which he must obey. He has been told what the consequences of obedience and disobedience are. More than that, man does not need to know. We're on a need-to-know basis. And the one who determines what we need to know is not you and me. There are plenty of things we'd like to know. We'd like to know why this or that is happening in our lives, why our circumstances are what they are, why we didn't get that job that we applied for, why, 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 why. It's not for us to know. It's for us to trust. It's for us to obey, to trust and obey, as the hymn says. Well, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey When we don't understand what is going on and life seems hurt so much, that's when we most need to trust. It's not so hard to trust if we understand what's going on. It's in those periods where we're overwhelmed, where we're at our wit's end, where we, we just don't have an answer that we have to say our sufficiency is in Christ. We know him, we trust him, and we will obey him. Chilton points out that 
by these instructions, we learn two things. One, the book of Revelation has to do with largely contemporary prophecy, having to do primarily with things that are close to hand. And secondly, this book of Revelation is not an exhaustive treatment of last times. There's more to come, and that has not been revealed. So don't think you've got your system put together and you know all the ins and outs and you've got it understood perfectly. God is a God who is full of surprises to us. In John 15, Jesus calls us friends as well as servants. But even as friends, we're still on a need-to-know basis. And this is what we need to know. Jesus stands with his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. He is sovereign over the whole of creation. Secondly, we see in these few verses that Jesus is the faithful and true witness who delivers on his promises. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. The angel assumes this posture, raises his right hand to swear an oath. We still do that today, don't we? Primarily in the courtroom setting. Raise your right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Some have omitted, but historically, the words, so help you God, follow. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? So help you God. The angel lifts up his hand and swears that what he's going to say, what he has said, is true. In chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is revealed as the true and faithful witness. And so he is here. The one whose promises are yea and amen. The one whose promises are not to be doubted. What is his testimony? Look at it again in verse 6. This is what he says. There will be no more delay. Jesus is speaking of judgment. But the judgment he's speaking of is not the final judgment, not the second coming and the end of the age. This is a judgment for which there will be no more delay. Despite that testimony of the faithful and true witness, there are people who want to say it has been delayed. It's been delayed for 2,000 years. It's still being delayed. No. That's a misreading of the text. The text plainly says 
there will be no more delay. This is a coming in judgment, Christ coming in judgment upon the land and the people of Jerusalem, just as he promised in Matthew 23. I won't go into the whole chapter, but after pronouncing a series of seven woes, do you remember that? Woe against the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And, and seven times Jesus pronounces in the presence of crowds and his disciples, in the presence of those very teachers and Pharisees, Jesus says, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe, 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 woe unto you. Judgment, 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 judgment is going to befall you. He says, again, this sometimes makes us uncomfortable as we think of the kind and gentle Jesus. But Jesus says to these false teachers of the law, you snakes. I know that there are some people who love snakes. I don't. Never have, don't think I ever will. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you'll kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. <clears throat> Truly I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. And then there are those who say, yeah, but it's delayed, and he's talking about the generation at the end of the delay. No, this generation is the end of the delay. Oh, Jerusalem, he goes on to say. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's speaking to the people of Jerusalem right there. Right then. And he's telling them, there is a judgment coming upon you. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not. You were not willing. Look. He's not saying look into the distant future. He's saying look around you. Your house is left to you desolate. Just as he promised. That judgment is about to befall the city and the people of Jerusalem. The seventh trumpet will sound. And he says the mystery will be made known. There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. 
The interesting thing here, well, there are many interesting things here, but one interesting thing here is the word translated announced in the NIV, proclaimed sometimes, is in the Greek, the word from which we get the word evangelize. Evangel is what? What does it mean? Well, you know this one. You do. Trust your instinct. What is, what is the evangel? It's the gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news. To evangelize is to speak or proclaim the good news. And what's being said here is that the announcement that there's no more delay, this proclamation of judgment upon those who will not repent is good news. That has been announced, has been proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. What is the mystery? The mystery of God. When we think of mystery, we often think of something that is unknowable. Think of a a, a Hallmark, movies and mysteries. Detective stories. Who done it, right? That's what we think of in terms of mystery. It's all wound up in, in a good mystery novel, a good book will will have all these secret things throughout it. Hints. Mystery in its origin, the word itself in the scriptures refers to something that is there all along but not noticed, unseen. And that mystery, John says, will be known. The mystery of God will be accomplished. Paul writes of this in Ephesians 3. And he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The mystery that has been hidden, that has been unnoticed, it's there from the beginning. You can trace it through the Old Testament, but it's not a prominent theme throughout the Old Testament. But in Christ, Paul says it's very clear that there is one Savior, one body, one new man, made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ. So what he's declaring is that the holy city, Jerusalem, has apostatized. By rejecting the Messiah, 
the synagogues of Jerusalem have become synagogues of Satan. And the Jews have again become guilty of a form of idolatry, worshiping image, images of their own creation. The focus of the good news, the focus of evangelism will now shift to the Gentiles and to build this new temple without hands. The old one, the old temple that was made with hands must be cleared away. The destruction of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70 marked the end of the old covenant economy. It's finished. It's done. What does that mean? There is no more temple. We are the temple of God, the people of God. There is no more Aaronic priesthood. Christ is our high priest. And within the priesthood of this temple, we are all priests. The sacrifice has been offered. It's not to be offered again. What we do in the Lord's Supper is by way of remembrance, and it's important to do that, to remember that. We do not have an altar in the church. An altar is a place of sacrifice. Christ has been sacrificed. We have a table. It's a place of communion. It's a place of fellowship. It's a place where we sit in peace at the invitation of the host, who is Christ himself. This is the new covenant. This is the era in which we live. Christ indeed is meek and mild, gracious and compassionate. But do not mistake meekness for weakness. Do not mistake patience for impotence. Psalm 2 says rightly, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And his anger can flare in a moment. He promised judgment on Jerusalem in Matthew 23. And every one of his promises will most certainly be fulfilled. That's what we take away from this statement. Christ is the faithful and true witnesses. All that he has promised by way of salvation and all that he has promised by way of condemnation, both are true. And both must be fulfilled. Finally, this morning, I want you to see that Jesus Christ is the great soul winner who sends his servants out into the world to gather his elect from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. Verses 8 through 11. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it 
will be as sweet as honey. I can imagine John thinking, boy, that sounds great. Turn my stomach sour. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, isn't that kind of a strange symbolic act that John is called upon to do? Eat this scroll. A scroll contains a message, right? A scroll has something written on it, usually. That's the idea. Eat this scroll. It will taste sweet in your mouth, but it will be sour in your stomach. The thing is that if you don't have some background in the Old Testament, that just sounds weird. But a similar thing happened to the prophet Ezekiel. Listen, this is from Ezekiel chapter 3. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it. And it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. That's what John says. He then said to me, son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I'd sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. But I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. So from Ezekiel, we get the picture of eating the scroll that tastes sweet in the mouth. He's to go and preach to the house of Israel, but they are not going to believe him. They are hard. They are obstinate. And God says to Ezekiel, I'm going to make you hard. You'd be hard head. You're going to preach and preach and preach despite their obstinacy, despite their rebellion, despite their opposition, despite their unwillingness to yield, despite the hardness of their hearts, you're going to preach and preach and preach to them these sweet words that I've given to you. That's what's going on here. Uh, This is, in a sense, a, a republication of what is familiar to us as the Great the Great Commission. Yeah, this is a, a, a symbolic enactment of the Great Commission. Receive the scroll, the revelation of God. It's sweet in your mouth. Go and preach that message. Not now only to the house of Israel, 
He's told in verse 11, you must prophesy, you must preach again. NIV says about. The Greek preposition is epi, which means to or before. You must preach to or you must preach in the presence of many peoples. Many peoples, plural. When we talk about a bunch of persons, we call them people. But when we put the S on the word people, which is already plural, it's telling us that we're to speak to different kinds of peoples. Different peoples, different nations, different languages, different kings. We are to take that message. John is to take that message. We are to take that message and proclaim it freely throughout the world. To kings and slaves, to men and women, to old people and young people and in-between people, to people in North America, to people in Africa, to people in China, to people who speak English, to people who speak Greek, to people who speak Hebrew, to people who speak Romanian. to people who speak in sign language. We're to proclaim this message. And this message that John is to proclaim, this message of the gospel that we are to proclaim, is in this context both sweet and sour. Sweet in the mouth, sour in the stomach. What does that mean? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved, and those who are perishing. We are ambassadors of Christ, he says elsewhere. We represent Christ, both to those who believe and to those who do not believe and are perishing. But our message is one message. We don't mess with the message. We proclaim the gospel that's been given to us, And Paul says to the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. Some people hear our message, and it's a message of death. Other people hear our message, and it has brought them from death to life by the power of God's Spirit. Paul asks, who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men 
sent from God. Unfortunately, there are many people who do peddle the word of God, aren't there? They're peddlers. What I mean is they are, they are trying to sell the gospel. What they're interested in is not the integrity of the message that they deliver, but what they're interested in is, as one person put it, nickels and noses. They want people to accept what they say and fill their churches and fill their coffers. And in order to obtain that goal, there are far too many in our day who are willing to dilute and water down and just amend slightly and and leave out some things and emphasize other things in order to win the approval of men. Paul says, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity. That's an interesting word. Sincerity comes from the word sincera, sin. Without, Sarah means wax. In the ancient world, as are today, there is dishware that is very expensive, expensive china, fine quality workmanship. But then there were other pots that were fired, other dishes that were fired, and they had cracks. And the manufacturers of those filled the cracks with wax so that they looked whole, they looked perfect, but they were not. Sincera means without wax, without any fake additions or subtractions. This gospel message is sweet to those who believe and are baptized and are saved. That very same message is sour to those who do not believe and who by that message stand condemned. Message is not sweet or sour. It's sweet and sour, both at the same time time. We must not distort the gospel. We must proclaim the whole gospel. And we must remember, as we've seen throughout this book of Revelation, going back to how God deals with his enemies, the salvation of God's people requires the destruction of God's enemies. The one who is a savior to us draws us to his bosom, the chief shepherd who loves us, the good shepherd. That very same shepherd is a fierce lion toward all who reject him and oppose him. Faithful gospel proclamation offers the terms of peace to all who will yield and it promises destruction to all who rebel. It calls upon those who are dead in sin to turn from their sin, embrace Jesus Christ as Lord, and be saved. How is it with you this morning? Jesus calls people of all nations 
Jesus calls the people of Enumclaw to turn from their sins and trust him. Jesus calls the people in this room this morning. Many of you, I trust, have believed. You do believe. You do rejoice in the Savior. But it would be folly to ignore the fact that there likely are some here who have not. How is it with your soul? Are you a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ? Or are you his opponent? Are you an obstacle? Turn from your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not turn any away, but he saves all those who come to him. Let's bow together. Our Lord, we thank you again for your your great, great kindness to us. We thank you for every word that you've caused to be written, for all the scriptures. There's nothing that we can safely omit from our Bibles. We thank you, especially this morning, for this great book of Revelation that, that shows the majesty and the glory of our Lord Jesus in such a magnificent way. Lift up our hearts. For overwhelmed, let us look to the Savior. If we're struggling with sin, let us look to the Savior. <clears throat> Whatever our difficulties may be, let us entrust ourselves to your care, knowing that you are good and what you do is good. And that even those providences that are hard in our life, that are difficult for us to go through, are ultimately intended for our benefit, for the glory of your name. Help us to see Jesus in this book. The ruler, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, wonderful Savior. Lord, have mercy on us. Strengthen us by your word and your spirit. Help us to walk with you every moment of every day to the glory of your great name. And now may the grace of God our Father, the love of Jesus Christ, the Son, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with each one now and forever. Amen.